Hopefully you're not, because you have 60 minutes of quality music and chat coming right up. That was The Smiths with Rubber Ring from the album Louder Than Bombs. I'm David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always 
delivering the best in quality indie pop. This week's special guest is Shudder to Think, as I caught up with the main man, Craig Wedren, speaking in Maine, New England, a few months ago. This is the interview, which I'm going to break up in four, or three or four little easy-to-digest little segments. But to kick off the show, I think we'll play your favourite and mine. This is Red House.
rock and roll that is shut at a thing with the track titled Red House from their 1991 album Funeral at the Movies. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages, especially if they're positive and groovy. You can via Twitter or Facebook. Just go to at C86 show. I will be there. It will be delightful. Anyway, this week's special guest is main man from Shudder to Think, Craig Wedron, who I caught up with a few months ago, who was sitting in a rather delightful garden in Maine, New England. But anyway, there you go. That's the joy of um, Skype, I guess. And um, yeah, so I've got that interview, which I'm going to play towards the latter half of the show, when in fact, after the next track. And this is taken from a film that came out, which I thought was fantastic, called Velvet Goldmine. This is the ballad of Maxwell Demon. Take it away.
There you go. That is power pop perfection all the way. That was Shudder to Think with a track titled The Ballad of Maxwell Demon. And that was on a soundtrack to a film that came out in the 90s titled Velvet Goldmine that featured such people as, well, Jonathan Rhys Mayers, also Christian Bell, Tony Collette, Ewan McGregor. And uh, the film was written and produced by Todd Haynes and features a cameo with Eddie Izzard. It was uh, a film which was roughly based, it was a fictional film on the glam rock period of people's lives like David Bowie, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed. It was brilliant, though it didn't do a great amount of business at the box office. I still thought it was fantastic. So there you go. That's why I'm included. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with Craig Wedron, where we talk about Ground Zero and the beginning of indie pop, which is what I put down as 1983 with the beginning of The Smiths. But this is Craig and this is the first part of the interview. Craig, take it away. And I would say, you know, if if the Smiths weren't ground zero for me, they were, you know, first or second base. I mean, you know, basically for me and and my friends, um, not so much my D.C. friends. Prior to D.C., I lived in Cleveland. And so we were listening to um, sort of first wave 4AD bands, you know, Cocteau Twins, Exmal Deutschland, the, the, the kind of, you know, somewhere in between, somewhere in between, uh, the Banshees and, and, and the Smiths, that, yes. that kind of connective tissue. So, you know, I'm, I'm right there with you probably in terms of the, um, you know, the, the, the good, good poison that was in our water, um, that was, that was informing us and, and, and forming us and kind of, um, kind of shaping our sensibility so that by the time um, I got to DC where there was already already this this legendary hardcore scene um, when when I sort of got my proverbial chocolate into their proverbial peanut butter it made this really interesting smush of um, you know, a lot of the influences that we're talking about, say Smith's or, um, Cocteau Twins or The Cure, whatever, you know, that, that kind of first wave post-punk, yes. um, uh, British indie stuff, uh, mixed in with good old fashioned American hardcore and, um, things got kind of swirly and psychedelic, but still really heavy. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I've sort of listened to a few interviews recently or over the last few years with Brandon Flowers from, the killers you know all the way from las vegas and i mean he was very influenced when he was growing up with that kind of listening to those early indie sort of songs and obviously the cure and the banshees and and then simple minds and the psychedelic first so there was something sonically quite interesting but there was also there was always something quite essential about some of those bands and sounds i've always thought because punk came, punk punk was quite an aggressive it was quite a male dominated kind of genre i know there was susan the banshees and a few other bands but but the the, the sort of the indie scene of the 80s kind of made it quite sexy in a weird way well and that was and that was my um you know that was my upbringing too i mean i was about 12 when MTV first started and the only videos they had available were a lot of very androgynous, um, very, like you said, sensual, um, uh, genre bending sort of non hetero challenging kind of art pretensions. And, um, and that suited me just fine right alongside 
you know, your Black Sabbath and your Pat Benatar and whatever other crap was on the radio at that point. But um, it it all kind of poured in, I think, and made for a much much more playful kind of psychedelic not in a 60 sense but um but a sort of reinventive um uh kind of trippy sonic stew which which was always much more interesting to me than the um than the the sort of walled and bordered uh well are you a punk or are you a you know, are are you are you in a rock? Or are you in a disco? Are you straight or are you gay? Are you you know that that was never of much interest to me, and never of much interest to anybody in Shudder to think, frankly. And um, you know, and I think because in America, anyway, the the sort of whole college rock scene that became the nascent alternative scene that then exploded with Nirvana into the grunge thing, um, was so conservative and, um, kind of beige, you know, it was very male. It was very macho and, um, it was very, are you this or are you that? And, um, I think increasingly probably because of all the influences that you and I are discussing, um, it, it, it became almost like our own personal freak flag and something we really loved to challenge audiences with. I mean, we were always sort of a band's band, and so bands like Foo Fighters would take us on tour with them. And you can imagine after um, Kurt Cobain died and the, the sort of, let's call it the dregs of Nirvana fans some of whom were showing up at these first Foo Fighters tours, they were not that excited to hear a falsetto singing, you know, uh, uh, glitter-dipped, um, you know, d- uh, d- heavy dream sequence act, which was sort of what we were doing. And we we loved that. Um, as far as we were concerned, the, the kind of, death of in America anyway the kind of death of indie pop as we're as that, that like second wave post-punk stuff as as we're describing it that that kind of got put to sleep by um the glam revival or whatever it was you know that like guns and the hair metal thing the guns and roses the guns and roses situation and I love guns and roses but the, it really um ended the fun in a lot of ways for for those of us who were into you know the more blurred lines grays and pink hued um underground pop music that was happening that was so thrilling that every month there were you know 10 different records that were changing our lives from about 82 to 87 or 88 and so i don't know somehow somehow we proudly took that and tried to spit it back in um in all those straight boys faces indeed that's a very good thing to do especially if you can manage to write a hit single or produce a fantastic album that's the first part of my interview with craig wedren from shutter to think i've still got quite a bit more of that interview to play because we had a long chat and it was a nice afternoon 
that we have together. I know, it's just show business. This is David E. Saw. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be another track by Shudder to Think. This one titled Shake Your Halo Down. We're just rocking and rolling here in studio future. Anyway, that is um, Shudder to Think with the track titled Shake Your Halo Down from their album Get Your Goat, Not Coat. Anyway, the second part of my interview with Craig, where we talk about the 80s and uh, the early years of the band. And um, I just asked him a bit about the political and social times that he was also living through during those or that exciting decade, the years of Thatcher, Reagan, high unemployment and all that kind of groovy stuff, as well as the sort of musical mainstream of sort of um, big production sound, big hair, big collars and also L.A. rock. And uh, this was Craig's reply. Craig, tell us your reply. It was uh, it was less binary. It was much more fluid and uh, much more akin to what I see uh, happening in underground and indie music now, where um, it's you don't know if it's a boy or a girl or a robot or a, I mean, it's like it's practically cross species at this point. The the music that um, 
you know, kids are making kids, for lack of a better word, are are, are making in their bedrooms with friends, um, feels so umbilically connected to the era that we're sort of romanticizing, um, and yet it's and yet it seems to be happening quite naturally as less of a um, desperate reaction statement and more of just like a natural um, creative expression, which I think is really interesting and one of the one of the blessings of um, the internet, yes. you know, that suddenly all shades and colors were revealed and people could sort of mix and match without necessarily having to feel like a freak. Um, while also not necessarily having to have a local community of like-minded freaks, right? Because, I mean, that was part of what was going on in the 80s and in the 90s to a certain extent is um, you had your little community, you you felt like a misfit, you found fellow misfits, and you created a little misfit, uh, you know, band. And um, I think, now you can be a misfit who lives, uh, you know, feel like a misfit who lives in the woods and feel a lot less like a misfit because you have, um, because you have online access to every other like-minded misfit in the world. Um, and that's, that's pretty weird. That's kind of unimaginable to me. I mean, only because, you know, I was pretty much fully cooked by the time, um, by the time the, internet and social media was, um, you know, standard fare. Yes. Um, so, so it's interesting, you know, hearing what's coming out of, um, musical brains right now. Yes. But it's interesting because, um, it was probably the late seventies, early eighties. There was a band called Big in Japan from Liverpool that featured people like, um, Holly Johnson and a member of Wire and sort of Julian Cope and and all these other people and then there was a woman called Jane Casey and um, and they were all the freaks basically of the Liverpool scene and I remember Jane Casey saying that you know you basically were wearing your neurosis on stage and it was kind of interesting because actually there wasn't the internet to sort of go and feel comfortable you had to go to a club to to sort of be to feel com you know to feel at ease with with yourself but also to find yeah. people that you think oh thank god for that i'm not the only person yeah. who's who's got some sort of childhood trauma and problems yeah. i can i can sort of come here and you know we can form a band and and so those that that early scene in liverpool was quite interesting i always remember that documentary where you know it's like yes they all had a lot of issues but they all got on stage and <laughs> dealt with them like that so, yeah, so, so basically, I mean, you know, with the early years of, of forming the band, did it come together quite quickly? It did. I was, um, I was a senior in high school, so I was 17, I guess. And uh, I used to do a lot of theater. And um, I, I was doing a play with a, a girl whose boyfriend had graduated from the same school that we were going to the year before was in a hardcore band called Stooge, S-T-U-G-E, with umlauts over the U, just to give you a picture. Oh, yes. And, and uh, it was, you know, it was a, it was a pretty, pretty straight-ahead DC hardcore band, and I didn't have any problem with DC hardcore. I love Bad Brains and Minor Threat and Rites of Spring, but it wasn't my scene, you know. It, I was, like what we're discussing, I was a, a less... Um, 
rigid, um, uh, I don't know, uh, strictures, I guess. And, um, so, but, but I had, I had moved to DC in 11th grade the year before I had been in and out of a couple bands. I had a sort of peculiar vocal style for the times. I was never a screamer. Um, and I like to use the, the higher end of my, of my register. And this was before Radiohead and before Jeff Buckley and, you know, really was not, um, it wasn't, it hadn't been mainstreamed yet. People weren't used to it. And, um, it certainly wasn't macho and, um, and it was very dramatic and theat theatrical in a certain kind of way. So, um, so I had joined a few bands and been kicked out of a few bands, one industrial band because I was too commercial and one, um, and one sort of, I don't know, chili peppers meets XTC band because I wasn't commercial enough. You know, it was like, I couldn't find my place. And, um, so this girl who was a friend of mine and I were in a plane and she, she slid me a cassette and said, this is my boyfriend's band. They're called Stooge and their singer just went off to college. So they're auditioning new singers. You should, you should try out. Um, because really I'd been singing in bands since I was about 13 years old. And, um, at the time, at that point in my life, it really was kind of my identity as far as I was concerned. And having moved when I was 16 to a new town, I really, really needed that outlet because I didn't have too many friends and I, all I had was my music really. And, um, so I listened to the cassette. I didn't love it. Um, but I went to the audition because it was the only offer around at the time. And I didn't love their music and they didn't love my singing. And then we um, became a band that lasted for 12 or 13 years. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, within, within two or three rehearsals of playing together, at first we weren't sure about each other. We liked each other as people, but aesthetically it, it didn't totally make sense. But um, within a few rehearsals, it started. We we all started getting this weird feeling, like um, there was the potential for something really um, unique going on, and um, and then we just we really just pushed that as far as it could go, and uh, you know, to to great effect as far as I'm concerned. I, I listen back to those records and 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 uh, i still feel really good about them but but it, it took a minute and that's the second part of my interview with craig wedrin from shutter to think but now he's also um a solo artist and i will by the end of the show play a track from his uh, latest solo album but before that and before the next bit of the interview i think we'll play another song by the band this is titled call off the playground <laughs> Yes, treat me like you wanna sit 
And that was the ending track to the album 50,000 BC, titled Call Off the Playground by Shudder to Thing. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Craig from the band. And as I said, also now releasing solo material and lots of other stuff besides. But this is where we talk about the longevity and the narrative of Shudder to Think. Craig, tell us about the narrative. On the one hand, we were all pretty... Um stable individuals, which is to say we were raised in fairly, um, I don't want to say conservative or or traditional, but, but like we had, you know, we came from good homes and we had good values and good work ethic. And we were all sort of on the same page just in terms of, um, um, keeping our noses relatively clean in a, uh, in a field where there are like you said, where there are a lot of people working out their, um, their home life on stage. And there's a, I think there, particularly then there was a lot of rudderlessness and a lot of people who could get lost or caught up in a lot of the nonsense of the lifestyle of being in a rock band. Um, so I think the fact that we all had similarly solid uh, foundations helped us avoid that trap and also we we were like I said we all had we all had this kind of puritanical work ethic so um, we were really nose to the grindstone I mean we just worked on music all the time and we didn't come from um, New York or Los Angeles we were from DC. So there was room, there was more room to be almost outsiders. I, I always felt like in New York and Los Angeles, you had to fit into some mold. Like in LA, it was hair metal or Jane's Addiction or something like that. And in New York, it was New York hardcore or it was, uh, or it was, um, I don't even know what was going It was like, New York Dolls or something like that. And we just didn't have to do any of that. We could really work on our own sound and and our own sort of ethos as much as we wanted. Um, 
and I think, and I think that led to our, um, I don't know, I guess what we discovered and what we all agreed upon was that we would constantly challenge ourselves and reinvent creatively and sort of the promise for all of us of punk, post-punk and so-called alternative music was um, to do to do whatever the fuck you wanted, like regardless of what everybody outside, um, you know, um, commercial forces were or parental forces or were or, or cultural forces were, were telling you you needed to do. So we were constantly going back to the drawing board and kind of reassessing what do we love? What do we love this year? What inspires us this year? What do we all agree is exciting and unique and interesting? And going back to what you're saying about, you know, being self-taught, we we just forced ourselves to consistently be inventive. We challenged ourselves to be inventive constantly and to reinvent um, whenever we got bored. So I think the combination of all of that and mi mixed with um, Discord Records, which was the label that we, uh, the DC indie label, which was Fugazi's label and Minor Threat's label, um, that became our home, which also provided an incredibly stable, sensible, indie-minded community, was a really um, solid framework for for that allowed us the kind of longevity that we have and then eventually the, that we had and in, and eventually toward the end we started um we started composing music for film and tv which was sort of our final incarnation and you know eventually we we disbanded but but those two things constant reinvention a curiosity and sort of voracious, uh, you know, hu hunger for new sounds, exciting ideas and, um, experimentation mixed with being a film buff and, uh, and wanting to do film work, like still are, are kind of my two poles to this day. So, I mean, I don't know, I guess, I guess, Looking back on it, I don't know if I would have said it at the time, but looking in retrospect, hindsight being 2020, we kind of had our together more than I think a lot of bands. And well, actually, one thing that you said there, which obviously made a huge difference, was your relationship with the record label. Because the one thing I've noticed from talking to people is, is that sometimes you can almost feel some sort of tortured soul down the end of the the line because um, they don't really own their music and their relationship with the record label wasn't good for either you know even an indie label can sometimes completely screw over the artist or that label gets kind of merged into a bigger label and that disappears into another label and it's like well we'll never own the music that we create and I think with most people they've got to that age well you get to an age where you just kind of want to archive it and somehow kind of kind of be able to revisit it and have good memories rather than going oh my god it's, there's still issues and I'll never be able to reissue that music that we created because it's just too complicated so you obviously navigated that quite well yeah and and again I think it was it was down to good fortune um DC had this beautiful scene um Ian Mackay 
started this wonderful label that kind of, you know, Discord, which kind of became the the template for a lot of indie labels to follow. And there was just a very familial menchi in, in environment there. And, and I don't know, I, I, I think we were very fortunate in that respect and, and many bands aren't. And, you know, to this day, all uh, many of those, many of the people involved in that label are still dear friends and still people to whom I um, turn when I have questions about, you know, what to do next, where to go next, how to deal with business. Um, I now have a, a, a sort of a, a film scoring team, kind of a, a composing band, I guess you would call it, called Pink Ape. And I'm realizing the, the more sort of real it becomes and official it becomes, it mirrors so much of what I learned just by observing um, Discord. Um, so that by the time the sort of alternative boom happened and everybody was getting major label record deals and we were ready to sign with a bigger label because we wanted to get our music out there to as many people as possible, we actually had a pretty okay time uh, in the majors. You know, we, we signed to Epic Records. We made a couple albums for them and, and did a soundtrack. And even though it, it ran its course, it still felt of a piece with who we... I, I, it never felt like we got lost or swallowed up there. And I think that's down to, um, you know, down to this foundation that was Discord Records. Yeehaw, Discord Records. Not everybody is that fortunate or lucky, etc., to uh, be with such a good record label. Anyway, that was the third part of my interview with Craig. Um, before any more chat, I think we should play another track. This is actually a um, taken from his solo album, Adult Desire, that came out last year. This is titled I Was a Soldier. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
And that's a uh, track titled I Was a Soldier, and that was from the solo album that came out last year by Craig Wedren, titled Adult Desire. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show, if you want to contact me. I know I've said this several times, but, you know, I get very excited. Slightly desperate, but uh, never mind, it's my age. You can, via Facebook or Twitter, just go to C86 Show, and I will be there. Anyway, this is the next part of the interview that I did with Craig a few months ago and a bit of a um, extended um, version really where we talk about that wonderful world that was record labels and record companies and uh, going from the indie to the major which was always a big thing in my day. Sonic Youth Sonic Youth did one record with SST and I think Husker Du did a few records with SST but um, wasn't Husker Du like Twin Tone and then SST whatever and then Sonic Youth signed to DGC, which was Geffen. Yes, that's the one. Yes, with Goo, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, with Goo. And then Who Screwed Who, I think, was Warehouse, Songs and Stories, was their first Warner's record? Yes, their first, and then they they split after that. But but, yes, that was 87. I remember it well. A classic year for music, really. Um, Yeah, so it was kind of, yes, the importance of record labels. I mean, God. No one would understand it now. But at the time, it was like Husker Du and, you know, Sonic Youth have signed for majors. You know, that made the headlines, really, didn't it? Yeah, it was huge. I mean, it was such a it was such a big deal, which is hilarious, considering how it's all been leveled. <laughs> you know? I mean, probably deservedly. <laughs> you know, it's just such a it was such a shitstorm when, um, you know, around around uh, the year 2000, when everything just collapsed. Yes, this is true. But obviously, going going back or forward, you know, one of the the times when I remember, you know, a film that I thought was absolutely fantastic, and and um, yes, people are so 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 about it, which I think is a bit unfair. Was Velvet Goldmine, you know, the, yeah. the, the soundtrack, and obviously you appear on that. Did you enjoy yeah, making? Well, you made one record for that, didn't you? Though you contributed to. Yeah, um, I loved that experience. How did that happen? Well, we were we were starting to shift our focus to film and it was around 1998, I think we did a couple movies that year. The first one was called first love last rights where we, um, we were asked by a friend of ours, Jesse parrots who for, former bass player from the Lemonheads, which was originally where we met him. Um, he was making his first feature. They didn't have a very big music budget. And um, one of the main characters in the movie had a collection of oldies 45s. So he asked us to write all, write and record all those songs. And then we decided to get all different singers to sing them. So, um, you know, we wrote a song, like sort of a, um, a soul song that Jeff Buckley sang and a, a kind of Seeds esque garage, you know, 60s garage punk song that Billy Corgan sang and a Zombies esque pop song that Robin Zander from Cheap Trick sang. It was really like an unbelievable experience. And then shortly thereafter, um, uh, the, uh, who was it? Who was it? Randy Poster was the music supervisor on that. Who's still just an extraordinary artist. And, um, he asked us to write a couple Bowie-esque songs for the new Todd Haynes film. We were thrilled because we were big fans of Superstar uh, the Karen Carpenter story that Todd Haynes did with Barbie dolls, which I think was the, maybe the only movie he'd done before that. I don't remember. And, um, and we were obviously huge Bowie and Roxy and T-Rex fans. Um, so we were thrilled personally. I questioned whether 
Randy and Todd weren't completely insane to think that you could somehow recreate these songs and this music and this era using modern bands. But I'll be damned if it isn't, in my opinion, like one of the best soundtracks that still stands up. I mean, all the Roxy stuff that Radiohead did. And I mean, what else? Who else was on there? It was an amazing soundtrack and it really worked out beautifully. I think. Oh, Placebo, Placebo did a cover of uh, 20th Century Boy and then there was people. Yes, there was there was Pulp doing We Are The Boys and yeah. you, there was, you know, obviously Lou Reed. But, there, but the, the songs that you did for that, there was one, I think it was Hot One, which had a real oh. Prince-esque quality didn't it and then the ballad of maxwell demon as well yeah oh that was the one that had a real quality of i thought prince but you know i might be wrong on that but there was there was some lyrics in there which were absolutely so kind of surreal it's quite unbelievable you know for hot one which nathan the guitar player in shutter to think wrote um i think that is kind of princey all of his stuff is a little princey but i don't i don't know it's hard for me to see because I don't have a lot of objectivity. And then the Ballad of Maxwell Demon, which I wrote, was, you know, very kind of all the young dudes, like, um, um, I would say Diamond Dogs era with that kind of surrealist, um, Martian cut up lyric stuff. Um, but whatever it was, we were so, I think we were so thrilled and excited to be getting assignments that helped us out of the straitjacket of our own device, which was the Shudder to Think sound, which was all like spiky, kind of twisty, surrealist, um, uh, you know, challenging like art rock. And for somebody to say, hey, can you do like a mid-70s Bowie song? A playful um, invitation that... Um, we just went there joyfully, which which I think is why why those songs sort of still stick around for people. Yes, absolutely. Because I remember my first single was yeah, Space Oddity and was amazed because the B-side had changes and that track called Velvet Goldmine, which I thought, God, B-sides are fantastic. And then my first album I bought was Changes One by with Bowie and again was a bit amazed with yeah. certain songs, but like John, I'm Only Dancing and uh, Suffragette City. So there, were, there was kind of an element. So yes, I think I think you were able to channel the, the kind of uh, interesting quality of Bowie during that period remarkably Good. well because i mean it didn't it didn't sound like a it could have come from the 70s couldn't it basically and but it had that sort of playful sexual quality to it as well which was very bowie-esque so um it was a win-win really thank you but also you know you mentioned prince i mean he's in everything we do he's um he's in our blood can't can't get away from that guy no that's right. So when when the band finished that that kind of I suppose the, the, the first time, but you know, I mean, did you have a moment where you sat down and all said, "This is it," or did it did it feel like you all knew it was coming? You know, happening when it was end and when we ended. You mean yes. Um. It, so it was tricky. The last. Uh, the last proper Shudder to Think album we made, which is called 50,000 BC, which I love, but was a very difficult record to make because I had cancer during that period. I had Hodgkin's disease. Um, and Nathan, the guitar player, was really unhappy and I think wanted to front his own project. Um, 
So it was the first time that we hadn't all been on, and we'd gone through lineup changes. The guitar player um, for the first six years was Chris Matthews through all the Discord records, and the drummer through all the Discord records for six years was Mike Russell. And, you know, so Nathan came in the second six years, and Adam Wade came when we signed to a major label, and then Kevin March was another drummer who played on the on 50,000 BC in the Velvet Goldmine era. But it always felt, um, again, familial, and it always felt like we were all on the same page, um, mission-wise. So around when I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's, everything was starting to fragment. And for the first time in a way, where people really, which I guess happens at the end of your 20s, you know, everybody was probably between 27 and 30 at that point. And it's sort of the classic age where bands either double down or break up. Um, people get tired of living on the road with each other and they want to have more sustainable relationships and communities and frequently just want to do their own thing. Um, which was certainly the case with Nathan. And we would get into band practice working on new songs for 50,000 BC. And it would just be like those dreams that you have where you're trying to run, but you, but your body is like going through molasses. It was very difficult. Um, the soundtrack stuff, which happened at the end of that, was like a little burst, a little splash of fresh water for us. And we thought, oh, here's a portal into something new that we could do. Maybe we'll make records when we feel like it and do film soundtracks and produce other people's records and become more of like a, almost like a bespoke sound house, which gave us a moment of solidarity. But, um, we had just gotten off tour with, I think Pearl Jam took us on tour in Australia. And um, I remember we were in the Chicago airport and Nathan just quit, like at the airport. It was very dramatic. He was very dramatic at that point. Um, we've, we, we've all since chilled out and like, are, we're all good now, but it was like definitely a little crazy then. And he just quit. And I remember Stuart, who was the, the founding member, really, it was his high school band that I joined. He was the bass player. Looked at me and we sort of looked at each other and it was just clear in both of our eyes that that was going to be it. It was sort of a moment where we were, and I'm sure we talked about it too, but not in that moment, where it was going to be like, well, should we continue? Because, I mean, we can, you know, we can reconstitute for sure. And I certainly had tons of material and there were a lot of, you know, wonderful musicians and players in our in our sphere who would have been wonderful to get together with. But I think we were just we we're just kind of done being in a band. Um, and so that was it. There was no real should we, would we, could we. There was just that moment, and then um, you know, loving loving tears and hugs. Gosh. <laughs> no. Yes. No, it was intense. It was sad. I mean, it was really sad. I mean, actually, 
the final tour that we did was a Velvet Goldmine. It was it was a soundtracks tour that we did with Knitting Factory, and it was really really cool. Um, you know, we did Velvet Goldmine stuff. We did this first Love Last Right stuff. We did some stuff for Lisa Chelidenko's movie High Art, and then we would play a set of our own things. But I remember the very last night we played at Bowery Ballroom in New York City, and um, and uh, I just remember lying there all night in bed at this weird like hotel, like efficiency suite, watching TV all night in kind of a state of paralyzed shock and I remember they kept showing it was 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. and they kept showing that one of these I don't know if you guys have these time life presents a.m. gold and it's like 10 or 20 at that point cds of all you know classic a.m. like soft rock from 71 to 79 that you couldn't get because there wasn't the internet then and I just remember in some bleary state of like breakup misery, hungover, drunken, God knows what, ordering like 20 CDs of, you know, Seals and Crofts, like off of <laughs> on the final night of Shutter to Think, which God. is somehow appropriate. You're, in, you're in, embracing your yacht rock period of, of kind of holes and oats. <laughs> yes, I suppose we all do. It's interesting because actually, because being a sort of fan of the Smiths and then people like Joy Division, um, I sort of also realised when I was very young, I was I used to listen because my mum used to have it on the radio, you know, that kind of station where you'd play the Carpenters. And I remember the lyrics of the Carpenters were something that was so melancholically tragic. So you, you, when you're about five to ten, that age, you know, you don't realise, you know, as you're singing these songs, you know, exactly what it is until you listen to Joy Division. You think, my God, these are just the same it's lyrics. The same it's the same thing, yeah. <laughs> or, or when you hear Sonic Youth doing a cover of Superstar and you're like, oh, my God, this is intense. Yes. Well, that, that particular album, you know, um, something about, you know, if you're a carpenter, if I was a carpenter. I mean, yeah. I, I suddenly thought, like, yes, they really got it. Because at first you <laughs> thought, oh, God, are they going to are they going to butcher these songs? Or are they trying to be ironic, which is possibly the no. worst thing? But they weren't at all. They were like, oh, yes, you, you also grew up listening to these records thinking I say goodbye to love and um, realize and I, what, what it meant to Karen Carpenter when she sung those lyrics. And I think at a certain point, if you're a musician, um, you know, when you start, it's about a click, it's about fuck you, it's about we're doing this, not that, mom and dad. And then at a certain point, if you're in it for the long haul, you you quit with the rejection pose and you start letting it all in and really hearing what's um, um, fundamentally, essentially just gorgeous music like the Carpenters, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are 50 bands that I repudiated when I was 13, that by the time I was, you know, 25, I was like, what was I thinking? This is, you know, this is, this is forever music. This is beautiful stuff. Um, you know, even something like Hall and Oates, speaking of Yacht Rock, <laughs> that's just great. That's just that's just great songwriting and great singing and beautiful. That's just good music. Um, yes. Well, I, I remember sort of, you know, recently listened to some Todd, Todd Rundgren yeah. songs and thinking, God, yes, I slightly dismissed him mainly because of the way he looked and, and his kind of 
kind of rock and roll kind of world way of being. But then I realized, actually, that, yes, you're right. You just listen to the songs and think, actually, these are amazing. You know, I'll, I need to stop this and, and, mm-hmm. and do it. But thankfully, you know, I've always loved Burt Bacharach. So I never went yeah, through an anti-Burt Bacharach right. period. <laughs> and, you know. But actually, that period must have been incredibly intense because obviously the one thing about life is death and, and health. And, and you obviously had a bit of a double whammy with your band and your health. So suddenly hospitals, scans, blood tests, you know, suddenly becoming sort of, you know, suddenly having a folder of letters from the hospital and appointments, you know, must have been something that you thought, oh, I didn't think about this five, ten years ago. Yeah, or five months ago. Yes. I mean, it, it was a total, um, you know, it was like getting shot through the, the growed up cannon. Like, okay, you've had your fun. Now, now shit gets real. And, um, or surreal. And it was it was all of that. And I think it, I think it had that effect on everybody in the band. It was like, OK, really, like, let's take stock. Who are we as individuals, but also as a band? What do we want to do with our lives and where do we want to be in two, five, ten years? Um, I mean, it's easy, you know, it's it's easy to make sense of it in retrospect. Um, there are certainly times where I wonder, did we just take the the easy way out rather than, you know, like, like a marriage, let's say, you, know, you don't, you don't just toss it in cause it's tough. You, you work and there are, you know, lean years and mean years and some eras that are harder than others. But if you're committed to a thing, you know, to this sort of third thing, like the marriage, let's call it. And in, in a band situation, the marriage, the third thing is the band. Um, you, you work through it, but I guess I guess we had worked through things enough times that it was clear to everybody. It was sort of unanimous that it was like, no, this is the this is the moment, this is the moment. And also, I think there was a fear of, you know, we we sort of had a, especially for being together for twelve years, we had a pretty stellar run of consistently um, authentic compelling records Um, and it might be that we got a little spooked after the difficulty of making 50,000 BC and we're like you know what let's like let's let's let it be let's let it be pristine Um, rather than kind of wrestling it to the ground because everything that was going on in, in music and especially if we wanted to stay on a major label it was it was pretty clear um the writing was on the wall in terms of like boy band pop music on the one hand or you know this kind of new metal situation of like corn that was happening on the other side and um and the internet coming so we were just like you know what let's just hop off at this stop um yeah, having said that, you know, I still write. Yes. Well, the, I, I was just thinking, you know, because, you know, what you were talking about a bit earlier about sort of sitting there buying all these records. And one band that I also love in their different phases is Fleetwood Mac. And, and obviously realising you had that Peter Green period and the way that most of the mad, members of the band went slightly mad and disappeared and stuff like that. And then they had the Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham period and all the problems and ups and downs. And they still mentioned to do it. Do you look at a band like that and think my God, how do you, you know, and even now, I think it was this year when Lindsay somehow sort of 
got ejected from the band and the guy from um crowded house was yeah, brought, brought in and you, you thinking well god you know you guys you know you're all in your 70s you've probably had major lots of major operations and ups and downs and god knows how many relationships and and yet you're still happy to to hold the baton and keep it going somehow it's still important enough to keep doing um yeah i wonder about that you know because when the whole uh oh what's his name from crowded house it's the brothers um i can't remember his name actually but um when I heard that and everybody was, you know, up in arms and I, for one, had been excited to go see Fleetwood Mac this go around. Um, and then when I, my, my initial response was like, oh, I'm not going to go see them. Um, I live in Los Angeles and, and I thought, oh, great, I'll go see them at the bowl. And then when I heard that, I was like, mm, it's fine. But then I was like, you know what? Uh, oh, Finn, Finn, last names are Finn. Um, not Mick Finn. That that's uh, the guy from Crowded House, whatever. Yes, yes, I know. God. And I was like, uh, and I was like, you know what? They've done it before. They've done it three times before. I mean, from Peter Green to uh, um, Bob Welch, who was in there for a minute, and Danny and, Kerwood, and yeah, I mean, I, I like all. Of, they're they're beautiful. They're gems in all of those phases. The question is, like. They're probably not tortured anymore, but to to strap yourself on for that level of like interpersonal, I don't know, self and other torture, it just sounds like not the way I would want to live my life. No, <laughs> but yes, it was amazing because it was Christine McVie who sort of said, right, I'm, I'm getting off this ship. I'm just going to buy a country, you know, a country estate in Britain. I'm going to sort of just, you know, enjoy the countryside, buy some wellies and and walk around the fields. And I think after about five or 10 years, she went, I can't like, stand this. I can't stand this countryside. I need to get back on the bed. And then bizarrely made this solo record with Lindsay Buckingham last year. And everyone said, that's brilliant. And then suddenly this has happened. You think, what goes on in that band? I know, I know. It's kind of beautiful that they make room for all of it. Yes. So was, was it kind of when, when you know, the band finished, you know, you, you know, in that period, and then you started making solo material, did that, did that feel like an interesting time and place to be in yeah i mean I, I i was certainly for my first solo record which is called lapland which which for me has some of my best crafted songs like in sort of a classic song song sense but sonically or, or something about the energy of it like i was clearly feeling super insecure without the framework of band and um you know relative success I was trying to make my way I was at the beginning of trying to make my way as a film composer um, while continuing to make solo music and it was it was very strange although I love a lot of material from them but in my life life after it took me it took me about a decade I would say to feel sort of on solid ground again after Shutter to Think broke up because it had been kind of, again, my identity framework to a large extent since I was like 17 years old. And suddenly I was 28 or 29 or 30 or whatever. And, um, you know, many of my friends, lifelong friends who at 17 and even 22 or 25 didn't know who the hell they were, or what the hell they were doing. By the time they were 30, they were, they had kind of gotten their shit together. Um, for me, it was sort of in reverse. Suddenly, the, there was no ground under. And um, even though I was 
ostensibly on paper doing the same thing I had ever done, um, there was not the security or framework of being in a band, being in a relatively successful band and, um, you know, having that gang mentality. So that was really difficult. Um, but I don't think it hampered or hindered my output. It was just the way I felt, um, in it. And, you know, I, I had a few other band projects. I, I did solo stuff. I put together a group called baby, which was sort of like electro glam art thing that, um, that was awesome, but we never left Manhattan cause I just didn't want to tour after the end of shutter to think, you know, so it really never reached a wider audience. It was interesting whenever things came close to feeling like the lifestyle I'd been living in shutter think, which is to say traditional touring, traditional label, traditional, um, write, record tour, write, record, release tour. I would always put the brakes on. So I have to trust that that just wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted. And it really, I would say, I would say in like the last five, 10 years, um, I'm feeling like rebalanced again in this new way where, you know, I go out every few months and I play two or three or four shows. Um, and I have a studio in my backyard where I record my film soundtracks and my records and I make music with other people. Um, it, it, this feels like the way the, the sort of balance, the life work balance and the, the performance recording, um, community family balance all finally feels like right or, or, or at least in the ballpark. Um, and I think that was probably the inkling I was starting to get at the end of Shutter to Think, which was, and I think we all were, which was like, if this continues like this, we're all going to be miserable. We're all going to be miserable adults. Um, and now I'm a very happy adult and I still get to make records, play shows, have conversations like this with you, do movies. And, you know, I actually still write shutter to think music. Um, you know, we, it's just sort of in a, it's just sort of in a, in a folder on my computer and every once or twice a year, we all talk. We're like, Hey, so we want to work together? Nope. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep throwing stuff into the folder. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. Cause I sort of, I did a, yeah, it was people like Steve Mack who was in that petrol emotion. And I think he's got a band that he plays with and the guy called Kurt, who was in um, is an ultra vivid scene recently. Yeah. And I mean, after being, you know, in a band and doing or being an artist, I suppose, in that band, I think has sort of slowly come back and saying, you know, does his lecture and does a bit of this and that, but actually quite likes playing music, but it's not going to have to be judged anymore. It's a bit like, yeah, I really want to do this, but please don't. I just don't want to think about, oh, I could do this, and then A goes to B, and then B goes to C, and then suddenly I can sell all these records and go on toys. Like, no, 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 I don't want that. I just want yeah. to play music and, and not be judged or, or, or sort of hassled with that email or that meeting with somebody about it. Yeah, yeah, that's the way I feel. I mean, you know, I, I, I feel like my solo records are 
it's certainly my most recent one. I mean, I feel as strongly about it as anything I ever did with Shudder to Think. I, I guess I just don't, to me, it just feels like a sort of a continuation of, uh, of, a. Uh, don't know. It's just more reinvention, more following my bliss in terms of what's interesting, what's exciting, what's new, what do I want to do? And then doing it. And, and, and it's true toward the end of Shudder to Think doing that became a great deal harder because there was so much more money and pressure involved. Um, and now that doesn't stress me out as much. And it's just a real treat to have, to, to be able to indulge and engage with the real joy of, um, music and just creating something or performing something and sharing something with people without the weight of, um, yeah, of, of expectations and, um, band maintenance and hierarchy. It, it's, uh, it's good. It feels, it feels kind of distilled in a certain way. Yes. What, what would you say to your, you know, an 18 year old self, you know, cause obviously having decades now of experience, I would say, um, you're doing great, man. Keep doing it. Thank you. I would say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Because obviously, you know, you are, you're not even 50. So really, you know, when you look at people like the Stones and Iggy Pop, who I know are just kind of on another chapter on the planet, really. But I mean, you know, you think, Wow, you know, that's, you know, because I, I interviewed Lawrence from Felt and now he's in sort of various other go-kart Mozart. And he said, well, you know, with age, you know, perhaps one should get better, you know, with this, you know, you learn your craft. And I know Iggy Pop once said, well, actually, I can't write those hits because I can't be that kind of angst and messed up as I was in the 70s. But, you know, thank God. But, you know, I can still make kind of quite interesting music. And he just did something with um, Underworld recently, a four-track yeah. EP. So, so obviously, you know, you are still, you know, healthy, young, you know, you still, you know, you must still enjoy the creative process. Oh my God. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, um, and, and I have no trip about having to be anything but how I feel now, you know, I mean, there's no, there's no, well, you gotta, we gotta, put it back together and get it on the road and play those big Marshall stack Les Paul songs, just like do whatever I want. And that's always, that's all I've ever wanted to do. That was all Shudder to Think wanted to do. And I think probably, probably when the, when the fracture started was when outside forces started making us feel like we had to fight to, um, do fight more than felt healthy to just do what we wanted to do. And, um, yeah, I guess that's the, uh, that's the gift of age. But it's interesting because I hadn't realized that being in the band, even if it's just for that five year period, just how unbelievably difficult it is and how unbelievably everything is really being set up to, to, um, 
to almost destroy the band and the individual. You know, it's kind of an odd one, isn't it? Because because when you're young, you think it must be great. And you think, no, you have this dynamic amongst these four or five people who vaguely knew each other when they were at school or college. And then you have this weird management and you're signing documents you don't understand. And then you're doing a tour that no one's really prepared you. Because most people say, God, I love being on stage for an hour and a half. The rest of the time, I was so bored and fed up. You know, so it is kind of like, wow, what an industry to be in or, or a career to choose. Yeah, it's like the entire thing is constructed to challenge, like, how bad do you really want this? How much do you really love this? And I don't know. I I, I can't think of another. I mean, especially if you're a singer, it's such an athletic endeavor. And and so I often think of athletes, athletes and the way that they're, you know, not without their own pressures, but there's a respect for the body for the instrument, right? If you're an athlete, where a lot of the rest of your life is geared around maintaining health so that your instrument functions, you know, the the instrument for an athlete being their body, um, when it comes go time. And with music, it's like the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There is a lot that is available to, you know, numb and bliss and um, blot out the pain and the pressure. But all that shit gets you in trouble in a matter of years. So it's it's just not – it doesn't seem like a healthy construct, although I wonder whether – because of the kind of death or at least like rebalancing of the music industry, the traditional music industry, whether people won't kind of reconfigure and rebalance the lifestyle into something that's a little more sustainable. Yeah. It remains to be seen. But like, yes, I understand. I'm on, but I'm still amazed when, you know, you still get people like Amy Winehouse. I suppose that's quite a few years now. But, but you know, it's like, oh, my God, didn't you read? any of those stories or watch those documentaries you know all those the people who get absolutely you know like just took it too far you know and and I guess you can see certain young bands who you think god don't you know because with, with certain you know like in the 60s and 70s you think there wasn't that much history to to really look at but but now in 2018 you think well look you've got decades of, of like examples of what not to do <laughs> it's like no okay you know but you're not going to listen to an old person are you when you're young yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, you're just going to do what you're, one is compelled to be an idiot, I guess. <laughs> I was, I was. <laughs> it's always a good thing to do when you're young. Anyway, that is the last part of my interview with Craig O'Redwin. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. Much appreciated. If you want to know any more information about the band, you can Google Shudder to Think. I think they have a Facebook page and definitely a website. And so does Craig. And he's got lots of solo material as well. So do check it out a stunningly nice guy this has been david eastall have a great week and i'll leave you with another track well this is going to also be from the album pony express a record and i do believe this is titled he says looking down x french t-shirt that's it bye
I'm a mess, I got a human mouth so we could fool the boys are not impressed uh. When my space comes to all that Just hold me like a girl I'll be the captain of the gravity Max where I see your faces in the strangest places Starship over Venus to the sun 